I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 7th, 2016. Coming up, an interview with Dr. Sarah Spaulding of the Institute for Arctic and Alpine Research here in Boulder. Sarah studies microscopic single-celled algae, creatures that photosynthesize but aren't plants. She'll captivate you with her glowing descriptions of these tiny aquatic organisms. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Seems like everyone is talking about the microbiome these days, but interest in these bugs is not completely new. Over a hundred years ago, Eli Mechnikov, a Nobel laureate from Russia, suggested feeding live bacteria to people to improve their health. Not surprisingly, not too many people responded positively. We've come a long way since then in the probiotics business. There were more than $30 billion in sales last year alone. Regulation and clinical trials lag behind, in part because of the difficulty of controlling, meaning patenting, these naturally occurring organisms. Nonetheless, there are a few FDA-approved trials currently in progress. A recent review in the journal Science suggested that the next-generation probiotics will probably be preventive rather than therapeutic. For instance, routine administration of bacteria to hospitalized patients might boost their body's ability to fight infections from antibiotic-resistant pathogens. Replenishment of microbiota after treatment with antibiotics is an intervention that might reduce later infections. Because the bacterial species being considered for these uses have a long history of inhabiting the human intestine and are not associated with diseases or infections, it's unclear whether and how the FDA might regulate them. And here's another story on eating some unusual stuff. The billions of tons of plastics that we release into the environment for the most part do not biodegrade but they do break up into ever smaller and smaller particles, and many of these end up in the oceans. Although some marine organisms ingest plastic, few studies have investigated the health effects of a diet that includes plastic waste. In a paper in last week's Science, a team from Sweden studying the Eurasian perch reported many, mostly negative, impacts of these plastic nanoparticles, and we are talking tiny. 90 micrometers on average. That's smaller than the width of a human hair. Eurasian perch larvae that were exposed to these microplastics were less active, less responsive to predator cues, more likely to be eaten, and less likely to thrive. They preferred to eat those plastic pieces rather than their natural prey. Now that's some serious junk food. And now for some good news from the oceans. Cephalopods, such as squid, cuttlefish, and octopus, may be benefiting from changes to their environment, changes like due to global warming. A group of researchers from the University of Adelaide in Australia compiled data from fisheries and scientific marine surveys on global cephalopod catch rates since 1953. They found that cephalopod have increased significantly over the last 60 years. The group looked at some 35 species with different lifestyles, such as ones that live on the seafloor and in the open ocean. 
Cephalopods have short lifespans, rapid growth rates, and are highly adaptable, which in changing conditions, such as ocean warming, could give them an advantage over slower-growing organisms, the authors say. The cephalod cephalopod boom, however, could have damaging effects on their prey populations, such as certain fish and marine invertebrates. These might be a sustainable catch for global food supplies. This work was published last week in the journal Nature. And now for some upcoming local events in science. Dr. Fran Bagenal will talk about the Pluto, Pluto flyby at the Denver Café Scientifique tonight. Fran is the co-investigator and team leader of the plasma investigations on NASA's New Horizons mission to Pluto. Highlights of her talk about Pluto will include her description of water ice, mountains as big as the Rocky Mountains, glaciers of nitrogen ice, black hydrocarbons covering aging craters, fresh methane frost dusting tops of mountains, pitted landscapes shaped by sublimation, that is gassing off of solid ice, an ice volcano as big as Hawaii's Mauna Kea, and most bizarre of all, a landscape that resembles the skin of a snake. The talk starts at 6.30 tonight and goes to about 8 in the tailgate room of the Blake Street Tavern, 2301 Blake Street in Denver. You can visit cafecicolorado.org for details. And later this week, for science fans, the Colorado Skies program continues at Fisk Planetarium. This Thursday's event, titled By the Numbers, explains the relative sizes of various things in the universe, from the absurdly small to the unimaginably huge and how they influence each other. Preceding the talk is a 30-minute segment exploring the Colorado night sky. This is an opportunity to talk to the planetarium staff about your favorite constellation. This Thursday's show, June 9th, starts at 7 p.m. Visit the Fisk Planetarium site for details. That's F-I-S-K-E. Once again, I'm in trouble with my only friend. She is papering the window. You were listening to Life in a Glass House by Radiohead. Next, you'll hear about real life in a glass house. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Recently, I interviewed Sarah Spaulding about her long-term research on diatoms. These are microscopic single-celled algae, creatures that photosynthesize but aren't plants. It may be hard to imagine that you could find such simple creatures fascinating, but she's been studying them for over 20 years, and after listening to her, I think you two will find them amazing. Unusual about these organisms is they have silica cell walls. Now, many organisms have a little bit of silica in them, but diatoms are really the only organisms that have an external cell wall that's silica. So that's like a glass shell. Exactly. Wow. So these are algae that have glass shells. They live, they're organisms that have, uh, that live in glass houses. Yeah, yeah. So they can't, how do they get bigger? So yeah, most organisms, you think of them as, as they grow and they live, they get bigger. And diatoms, because they have these rigid cell walls, they're not able to expand. As they, as the cells divide, they 
get smaller and smaller and smaller. And then at one point of their life cycle, and they, they can have either vegetative or sexual reproduction, and they throw off their glass cell wall. <laughs> escaping. Escaping. And then um, go through a stage where they have just bands of silica, and it allows them to expand okay. to their maximum size. So the funny thing is, so the diatom babies are the biggest. And over their life cycle, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay. So are they actually lots of little diatom cells within a single glass house for a while? No, they're not. Um, They're not. It's the, just the, the, um, the protoplasm. It can be haploid or it can be diploid. Okay, so diatoms start off big, and then they get smaller and smaller as they get older and older. And then they just burst out of their glass house and reproduce? Yeah, so um, after the cells divide, so that the, the, um, they're constrained by this glass cell wall. So the new cell wall is only formed within the parent. And so over time, the cells get smaller and smaller until they get to a point where they can be triggered to um, go into either a vegetative reproduction or a sexual reproduction. And that point, the the two parts of the, of the glass cell wall split open and release the, um, the protoplasm of the cells. And they can combine in various sorts of ways. There's a lot of different variations on the diatom life cycle. But what happens um, in general is at that point is that um, that that zygote or uh, will form little bands of silica that allow it to expand to its very maximum size until it can lay down a normal cell wall again. So it's kind of like it's living in a yurt until it gets big <laughs> enough, and then it finishes off the outer construction. Actually, I don't know how a yurt is constructed. <laughs> I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> okay. So these little guys, when they're released, they must be really vulnerable to being eaten and predation. It is. It is a really vulnerable part of the life cycle. And so um, they don't do that very often. And and that's one of the things that um, I've been working on with one of my students is studying the life cycle of diatoms and how often they throw off their, their cell walls and get big again. Okay, so we know that they're single-celled little creatures, but they live in a glass house and they start dividing and dividing inside that. And then they are released into the environment, and sometimes they reproduce sexually and sometimes not. So they're pretty variable, and they live in all these different environments. So that's the background. And now you can maybe tell us about some of the cool research projects you've been doing with these little guys. Sure. So I work for the U.S. Geological Survey. Um, I'm located here at the university at INSTAR, and I work on a program called the National Water Quality Assessment Program for USGS. And our mission is to really look at the quality of freshwater, sorry, <laughs> specifically streams and rivers. And so um, we look at um, we look at the, the chemistry and 
But we really want to know, how are the organisms doing? How are the algae doing? What's their health? Who, what species live there? How diverse are they? And so um, one of the things that's just amazing to me is that um, diatoms are this incredibly diverse set of organisms. Maybe we have 3,000 or 4,000 species in the U.S., but we don't even know. And so in the process of studying them in rivers, we can see what their health is and what their condition is, but we're also looking at um, what's their biodiversity? What species are there? You know, where do they live and why do they live there? And for me, um, one of the things I just really love is finding out about life on this planet. And here I can go out to a, a river and find a species that no one has ever seen before. That's really exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah. And and just to be able to, I mean, I feel like as humans, we ought to know absolutely <laughs> our, the other species that we share the planet with. And so that's one of the, the really exciting things about my job is that discovery aspect of finding things that no one else has seen before, looking through the microscope and saying, oh my gosh, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to get too much into taxonomy of diatoms because I'm sure that's a whole year-long lecture. <laughs> but what kinds of things do you look at when you're looking through that microscope to tell if you're seeing a new species of diatom? Well, you know, they have these um, silica cell walls, and they're very intricate. They have a lot of ornamentation and details, and the taxonomy of diatoms is based on that silica cell wall. So it really relates to that, and it, it's also tied to that they get smaller, um, that imprint of their constraints. It tells us a lot about how they're related to each other. So is this using the cell wall as a feature of species? I mean, that almost sounds like using hair color in humans. I mean, is it is it really indicative of individual species or do you think the environment can affect how the cell wall is shaped and what it looks like? That's a great question. And that's one of the things that we look at always in, in studying them, that, that how much of the variation is due to um, uh, changes like how much silica is available or how much nitrogen or how much phosphorus, or do they live in a drying environment in which um, many of them will make some, we call them internal resting stages, that is a different shape of silica. So um, it we have to see them in a lot of different environments to be able to put together how does this, um, how do these forms relate to each other and really what is a species. So I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago because I think this might be a little puzzling to some of the listeners, but you called diatoms algae. And I think we should clarify that it's probably because they're photosynthetic organisms that they're grouped with the algae, even though they don't look like we typically think of algae. Right. And people probably all have different views about what algae is. Maybe a lot of people think it's pond scum and something slimy, but the algae is really um, one of those heterogeneous groups. It really doesn't have 
biological meaning. It includes um, whole different divisions of organisms that really are not very closely related. It's like saying bugs. So, um, but, uh, but diatoms are included in the algae um, roughly because they photosynthesize. But there's even some diatoms that don't photosynthesize. So um, there are, it's a, it's, a, it's a whole different group. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't realize that there were some that don't photosynthesize. Right. There are some even that have lost their chloroplasts. They're able to absorb dissolved organic carbon and live on their own in, in the dark. That is incredible. So would those be ones that you might find like really deep in the ocean or in the soil where there's no sunlight? Oh, gosh, I don't even know if I can speak to that. Um, they, they're not, those are not very well known. And um, it's, again, it's like an area of wide open for study. Okay, we'll go back to the photosynthesizers, <laughs> which are important in the food chain. And you've got a huge research study going on. I mean, if, if you've been commissioned to study different streams and rivers, is it are you sampling from all over the country and trying to identify diatoms and figure out their ecological roles? Yeah, so it's it's again, so it's part of the um, the NAQA National Water Quality Assessment Program. And there are I work as with a whole group of um, people that do coordinated efforts to look at different regions around the country and all of the different factors that may influence the organisms, not just the algae, but the macroinvertebrates and the fish. And we look at things like um, different stresses, whether it's um, sediment coming off of farm fields or pesticides or herbicides, now more the emerging contaminants. Um, so, and and then, of course, nutrient outputs. Um, we humans have really altered um, streams and rivers in such a dramatic way by um, the amount of nutrients that that come in off of our off of agriculture and off of our lawns and off of roads. There's just a whole suite of chemicals that go into the water, and of course, the organisms that live there are affected by those. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and I'm Beth Bennett talking to Sarah Spaulding from the University of Colorado, who is studying diatoms and their roles in different ecosystems around the country. So to get back to the water quality assessment, this is really interesting because it kind of works both ways that like you were just describing with pollutants and chemicals in the waterways, that will affect the populations of diatoms. But then do diatoms themselves affect the quality of the water? Um, that's a great question, and I don't know if I can really answer that. I mean, they certainly change the, um, they're able to change the pH by the action of photosynthesis. They take up CO2, they generate oxygen, they take up nutrients. Um, one of the things is with an algal bloom, um, that's one of the things that people are worried about, um, is that we have a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus going into the waters, and what that can do is stimulate 
the algae to grow, they take it up um, and it can, um, in the, by forming a, a large amount of biomass um, that then later dies and decomposes, it can um, take oxygen to decompose that, which causes fish kills. So that is very much a chain of how the, the chemistry is altered by the action of these organisms. So something is popping into my memory. Are the red tides off the East Coast that cause fish kills, are those diatoms? Those are actually dinoflagellates. Dinoflagellates, okay. Dinoflagellates. Different critter. And there are, you know, your um, there are red tides. There are different kinds of toxins that are formed by algae. Dinoflagellates are another type of algae. And increasingly, we've we've had um, people might have heard of um, toxic algal blooms. They happen both in freshwaters and also in estuaries. And they have become more prevalent with um, increased nutrients in both of those places. And those can be harmful to, you know, uh, produce toxins that are taken up by shellfish or taken up even by, um, by dolphins in, in the West Coast. There's been, and that's actually formed by a diatom called Pseudonitsia that has, um, that produces a toxin that affects um, a large number of, of organisms. So are people thinking that some of the recent dolphin deaths where all these dolphins have washed up on the shores might be due to that, to diatoms? Yes, that's oh. true. There, there have been, and um, a, a number of marine mammals um, are impacted by um, these blooms of Pseudonitsia. So this is kind of scary. I mean, initially, one might think that this is great. Diatoms are kind of cleaning the water of these pollutants, the, the excess runoff from agricultural lands. But in a chain reaction, they actually end up causing some damage. Well, maybe one thing is to, um, if we think about them as um, having different, different activities, some algae, some diatoms produce toxins and sort of behave badly. Oh, bad guys in the, the ecosystem. The bad guys. Um, some of them are like the redwood trees of the, of the microscopic world. So they engage in a very diverse set of e ecosystem activities. And um, so um, it, it's, you can't classify them as one or the other. So that's a really important point. I'm glad you raised that about biodiversity, that there's a huge range of roles that organisms play in an ecosystem. And it sounds like you get to scope those out and, and go out there and collect diatoms in different environments and try to figure out what they're doing. And how do you do that? How do you figure out what a diatom is doing out there? Oh, that's a great question. And, um, and a lot of times it's... Um, piecing things together by seeing what the distribution is of a species, being able to look at what conditions that it grows under, um, where does it get the most abundant. Um, and so in that sense, we have a great amount of uh, data from the, the USGS stream survey programs to be able to look at 
whole suites of characters and see how they are related to the distributions of organisms. One of the things is um, to really look at that, we would need to do sort of experimental work and, and culture studies. But that actually turns out to be really difficult and um, hard to uncover wh how what actually affects diatoms because they're really hard to grow inside. <laughs> so many things are. It's crazy. So in... In wrapping up, just for people around here, around Boulder, that might be interested, if we were to take a walk along Boulder Creek, and I asked you to point out some diatoms. I mean, they're microscopic, but they they evidence themselves in macroscopic forms. What would we look for? That's right. And in fact, just before these recent snow snowstorms, when the flow in Boulder Creek came up, I had been walking along the creek and looked down into the water and saw, aha, a nice diatom bloom is going on here. And what I saw is kind of diatoms give themselves away by a very golden brown color. And sometimes it looks sort of felt-like on the rocks. Um, other times it it forms sort of little str streamers. And, it, and if you feel the rock, it's not exactly um, slimy. Um, but the, the color is quite distinctive. So they, those little glass houses are clumping together, forming long streamers that attach to the substrate? That's right. So even though these are um, each cell lives on its own as a single cell, they form colonies, and they can be linked together in all sorts of ways that they're um, linked by, by silica spines or they grow on stalks. Um, or they um, form these lovely little rosettes um, attached to the surface of the rock. And if people are interested in seeing some of the some pictures of these and what they actually look on the streams, they can look at um, a website um, called Diatoms of the U.S. And it's a project that I've been involved with for many years. And it's one of our efforts to document the biodiversity of species across the country and actually um, let people know about um, what their ecology is. That is great to know. And we will post a link to that website on our website. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been a great conversation with Dr. Sarah Spaulding talking about her research on diatoms. Thanks, Beth. That was Dr. Sarah Spaulding of the Institute for Arctic and Alpine Research, and I will post that website on the How on Earth website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Radiohead. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.